Thank you, Lord, for giving us bodies that can worship you. For you are worthy of our worship. Amen. Take a seat if you would. I want to begin this morning as we continue our series on what the Bible says about, I want to talk about, of all things, cavemen, with a question mark. Now, by a show of hands, by a show of hands only, that means mouths don't move, it means arms get raised, who knows who this is? Anybody? If you think you know who he is, raise your hand. Okay. Who is it, Tracy? Captain Caveman. <laughs> That's exactly right. Captain Caveman. K- Captain Caveman. Who didn't know who that is? Raise your hand. Okay, you forgot the name. Well, you're ignorant, so it doesn't matter, right? <laughs> Captain Caveman. We're roughly around the same age. We grew up around the same time. Here's my history with Captain Caveman. Remember the house I I told you I was living in where my mom, where I said, let's get the hell out of here? And my mom washed my mouth out with soap for saying that. She was in that TV room right next to the garage and I threw up soap the next night, that that night. That same house, I would get up every morning, Saturday morning, and by around eight in the morning, I would literally watch cartoons from eight to noon. Because you could do that back then, because that's what was on, yep. right? The Super Friends, uh, Scooby-Doo, Bugs Bunny Roadrunner Show, all that type of stuff. In there was Captain Caveman. And he had that, that way of speaking that she, Tracy kind of, I don't want to embarrass her and have her do it again, but he spoke that way, and that was his call. It's Captain Caveman, and so on and so forth. This is Captain Caveman. Of course, that's what we all believe about cavemen, right? They kind of, and this is obviously an animated version, were like that. Um, a little information about him. He was a prehistoric caveman thawed from the ice by teenage girls. I forgot about that, the teenage girls that were with him. A total of 40 11-minute episodes ran for three seasons from 1977 to 1980. That was a time frame we were living in Clarkson, Michigan. Eventually, he received his own 30-minute show called Captain Caveman and the Teen Angels. All I remember is Captain Caveman. Now, Captain Caveman speaks in stereotypical caveman talk. Now, what is that? Well, he replaces subject pronouns with their object equivalents in dropping articles such as the. For example, me know where bad guys are hiding. That's Captain Caveman speaking. Or if you are a product of Louisiana education, that's how you speak. A little jab at my mother-in-law there. Me know where bad guys are hiding. And he often mumbles the, the nonsense phrase, unga bunga. No, we think of cavemen, right? Unga bunga. Me know where food is. Want woman. Unga bunga. That's what, how the caveman talks, right? He represents the stereotypical view of the early prehistoric man, and that is he's unintelligent and he's unadvanced. For example, we were taught that it took 
our, our early fathers, our ancestors, these cavemen, hundreds and hundreds of years just to discover the wheel, okay? And this is what most of us were taught in schools about cavemen. But we probably failed to connect the dots where this stereotypical idea of cavemen, or caveman, or cavewoman, I guess, where it became so popular. Now, I want you to tell me if this picture looks familiar to you. Exactly. This, of course, is what? Charles Darwin's famous image depicting the evolution of man. Of course, this was founded right around the early 1800s, and so by the time 1977, 1980 comes around, it is fully embedded in American culture and in our education system. Thus, the caveman, right? So naturally, everyone thinks that the first family, and the first family I'm referring to, Adam and Eve, and all of their offspring of the, and this is the, the pre-flood society, we naturally think, I did, maybe you did as well, they were cavemen, right? Maybe not evolved, but they were cavemen. And that they would have been, of course, unintelligent and primitive. Is this the way you think about them? I did. Or are you just, am I the only one I can just stop this sermon series because everyone else is smarter than me in this, okay? So if you've thought this way, show a little humility, raise your hands, okay? Everybody raise your hands, you thought this way. Maybe not, I, 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 but a year ago I began researching this. Lord, you sent me a sermon series on this as well that I had looked up. And I'll get into that in a moment here. But this is kind of how we think of them, of, of, of the first family, and my question is, is that what the Bible teaches? The Neanderthal man? No. So let's look at what the Bible says about the first, not family per se, but the first society, which would be in the pre-flood society. Okay? And for that, you have to turn to Genesis chapter 4. I think you'll find this a very, very fascinating next few sermons. And I, I first heard about this, I was looking at a few sermons from John MacArthur, and I stumbled upon this. Since then, I began researching a bunch of different other resources on this, and it just was absolutely fascinating. And it, it struck me that if the society we live in today had a beginning, when did it begin? What was it like? And you start thinking even more, this pre-flood society, what was that like? because everything changed after the, the flood, okay? So let's look at Genesis chapter four, verses 17 through 26, okay? And let's talk about the first society. Now I've talk, taught you in the past, this would be like the first kingdom or the first family or the first society, but look at starting in verse 17, going through verse 26. Cain had relations with his wife and she conceived, and gave birth to Enoch, and he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad became the father of Mahujala, not Methuselah, Mahujalah. Mahujalah became the father of Methushael, Methushael became the father of Lamech. Lamech 
took to himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal, who was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice. You wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech. Men have been saying that ever since the very beginning. Just listen to me, wife. So obviously it's been an issue from the very beginning. Can I get an amen from that? I noticed that the low male voices saying amen, no high female voices. For I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Verse 25, Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. I want you to think about this for a moment. This is the account of the civilization of the world before the flood. So it recounts the story of man in his development in a really unique uh, era of human history. And if you'd like me over the years, being a believer, and you just read it, you just kind of just read it for information and that's it. But when you study it, you realize there's a whole lot here and more. Because what may appear as simple, simply information about the first family, it's actually a very broad uh, in sweeping information of the story of civilization. And there are some points I need to make and that you understand before we take a closer look at the text this morning. So really, the rest of this sermon is gonna be these 15 points I want you to see. We won't even get into this text for the most part this morning, we'll do that next week. But these are 15 points I want you to see because this is just totally foreign to us and how we thought about um, our first ancestors Adam and Eve. The first point I want to make is this, which I've kind of already made, and that is this. That Adam and Eve and all their offspring were not the primitive Neanderthals that we've been conditioned to believe. Okay? We're taught that. Adam was quite intelligent. Remember I told you a while ago, Adam named all the cattle it says, in the birds of the sky and every beast of the field, Genesis 2, 19 to 20. Could you do that today? Nope. I couldn't. Now, how about this? Adam also had an understanding of human anatomy. Did you know that? Think about it. When Eve was brought to him, what did he call her? And saying what? I mean, he called a woman because, meaning became, because she came from man and she was like him. Well, how? Well, he said she was made of bone and flesh. So he was aware of the anatomy of the human body. Already calling it bone and flesh. How he knew that on his own, I don't know. I have to be taught that I'm made up of flesh and bone, right? And we also see early on that they quickly developed a society. And it included animal husbandry, music, 
and metallurgy. You see that? Now these skills require an accumulation of information fine-tuned and retained over time. That all indicates a high degree of intellect. So the thought that our early ancestors were the uneducated, primitive cavemen who were grunting and snorting and bent over chewing raw flesh, that is unbiblical. Get those images out of your mind, okay? You're thinking too little of yourself, like we saw in the video today in Sunday school. That thinking comes from evolution. Number two, Adam and Eve and all their offspring were healthier and physically stronger than we have ever been. We learned from their genealogy that people lived for hundreds of years. Genesis chapter five, you see that Adam lived, you know how many years? 930 years. Even cursed Cain, we believe, lived 800 years. Methuselah lived the longest of any man who has ever lived, was 969 years. That tells us there was a, a pristine purity in the human genetic system, in its bloodstream, and it limited the accumulated mutant genes that are in all of us today. Now, if you combine this with a, a primeval absence of disease-producing organisms, organisms which only gradually developed through the effects of the curse, see, that, that's one of the reasons they lived so long. And perhaps even the original created microorganisms were no doubt beneficial and served to assist life in that first great age span, meaning they were very resistant to disease in illness, in aging, in their extreme health. If you die at 80 years old today, we say that you've lived an average life, right? Most people die around that age, okay? You would have been an infant dying if you're gonna live 900 years, okay? Number three, because of their superior physical strength and uncompromised immune system, they had great stamina. And this allowed them to have many children, fulfilling God's mandate to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth in Genesis 1.28. Now, we cannot really imagine how many sons and daughters 900-year-old people could have. By the way, who has the most children here? We have four. You have Four or five? Five. Anyone else have more children than that? Can you imagine if you lived 900 years, how many children you would have? I assume this, yeah. <laughs> I have a hard enough time remembering the names of our four children. But assuming that being 900 years old was like being 90 in our world, People back then could certainly be having children into their 400s to 500s. I see all these wives, mothers. Nope, 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 nope. And so we would assume that they could be having children at a rapid rate, who would then be having children, who would then be having children, 
who would then be having children, etc., etc. So you see, get this, okay? So on and so forth, okay? It's a lot of diapers. I mean, you didn't even have diapers back then. I guess they would use animal skins, I guess. I don't know. Very quickly, I'd be like, remember, your first child, you keep them in this pristine, clean environment. You get tired, you have a second child, you see your first child eating dirt, and you're like, don't do that. By the time your third child, you go all outside, all eat dirt all you want, you'll be fine, I'm too tired to do anything about it, right? <laughs> you imagine having, you're four years old, you have 100 children, yeah, just go play anywhere, just eat what you want. You know, I, I don't have the energy or the time to sit there and account for 400 children, all right? Or 100 children. Okay. I think life is tough. You know, having one child is great. Having two is a little bit of work because you're, 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 it's one-on-one with a husband and, and, and a mother, or father and a mother, husband and wife. Going from two to three was brutal for us because we were outnumbered. It was just hard. Going to three to four was, was like, it's just addition. Can you imagine going from 99 to 100? Yeah. Yes. Okay, number four. In the early generation, obviously all marriages were what? Brother-sister marriages. Here's the thing about it. There were no mutant genes in the genetic system in any of those children. Well, why? Because, again, there was a, a pure element in humanity that had not degenerated. So even with interfamily marriages, there was no genetic harm that could have resulted. We saw no genetic harm that resulted amongst the Amish community when we lived in uh, Northeast Indiana. Number five, with such long lifespans, one can imagine that the earth was very populated. Now, conservative estimates, this is what blew me away, conservative estimates say that by the time of the flood, which was, by the way, 1,656 years. So 1,656, from zero to 1,656, that's when the flood came. There would have been between seven and 10 billion people on the earth. Seven to 10 billion people. Yeah. So when the flood wiped out, all humanity blotted them out except for eight people and those are conservative estimates, 10 billion people. And it makes sense when you start to slow down and think about it, doesn't it? They're living forever, they're not as sick, and they're having children, and their children are having children. It's the, the, the law of multiplication. You want to reach the world for Christ? Well, how is that possible? How could everyone hear the gospel? I share my faith, and I continue to share my faith. You share your faith, you continue to. You lead someone to Christ, they share their faith. The next person you lead to Christ, they share their faith. It gets multiplied in its effectiveness. Consider this now. They were highly skilled. Think of this. Because of their long life and intelligence, they were skilled to a level we probably cannot comprehend. Can you imagine doing something for 600 years like playing a musical instrument or breeding cattle or forging iron and metal? How good would you be at that? I mean, you would certainly learn to master that skill. And such experience and skill would lead to what? 
it would be great productivity. You'd be very productive. Now, because the curse is causing a constant decline in every aspect of our lives, we're getting weaker physically. And we have to be supported by certain scientific inventions in the area of medicine because the law of entropy applies to us. What's the law of entropy? Everything is moving towards chaos. Or it's, you know, it's like you have a brand new car, it doesn't stay in pristine condition, it starts to rust. That's the law of entropy, okay? Matter breaks down. So back then, now here's this society. It's immensely creative, okay? They are immensely productive. They're very strong, and they're very healthy, and they're very intelligent. They were more intelligent, more skilled, more experienced, more productive, stronger, healthier, and they lived in a far less hostile environment. And I'll get into that in a little bit later, okay? Number seven, we don't know the language they spoke. We assume it was one language that continued on through Noah and his family. And Noah and his family were the only eight people who survived the flood because after the flood, in the Bible, there comes a story of what? The Tower of Babel. And what did people do then? They wanted to build this monument to the sky, and they could do that because why? They all spoke one language. They were united. With one I mean, God even says of them that they have almost unlimited potential. The Lord himself said, nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. We can't get, I don't know how many people in our government to agree on one thing right now. (laughs) And they all speak the same language. And what we have written down on the page of scripture, what I just read to you, yeah, you're reading in English, but it was written in Hebrew by Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But we don't know what that language was. All we know is that they, because they had one language, they were incredibly productive. And this was after the flood, by the way, they were able to build this Tower of Babel. Number eight, they lived in a far more favorable environment than the post-flood civilization. Now, the cataclysmic flood, and that's flood, that's what it was. It was cataclysmic that covered the whole earth, and except for eight persons, drowned all of humanity and every other living creature outside the ark that moved on the earth. The scriptures say that flood, folks, and I'll get into this in another sermon. If you didn't know this, I didn't. It literally reshaped the planet. It reshaped the planet. In other words, what we see today in, what, in our, our, our planet, it was vastly different in the pre-flood society. And I'll get into the science of that and everything what the Bible says about that at, a, at another sermon. Okay? But it, it created very likely the flood, the, the current continents and mountains. It literally readjusted land and water. It reshaped the earth. And as a result of that, it totally destroyed that first civilization. So if what I'm saying is true, what was their world like? Well, prior to the 
the flood, theologians believe and scientists believe that it was, the world was different in that there was no, there was essentially, there was no weather. No wind, no rain, no snow. Did you know that? I didn't. I never studied it. There's none of that. The terrain may have well been gentler. There were probably greater flatland surfaces. The climate was mild and warm. There were abundant plants and animals that would have covered the earth. It was a very favorable environment for mankind to fulfill God's command to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth and to rule over the earth and enjoy its produce. This is most likely the time, obviously, when dinosaurs existed. Okay? So it was totally different than our current environment because our current environment is bent toward natural disaster. We just saw an example of that in Hurricane Ian. Okay? Now we're going to cover this again, as I said, later in a sermon on the flood. That's point number eight. Point number nine. Because of the flood, very few artifacts of the pre-flood era have been found by archaeologists. Now, they're able to find in their digs artifacts that relate to the post-flood world, even going back to the time of Noah. And there are occasional times when fossils of the pre-flood society buried deep in, in, in the earth, and the rock strata and so on, earth's crust are found, but by and large, we know very little of the pre-flood society. Very little. Which is why Genesis 4, 17, 26, which we just read this morning, is so valuable to us. The only history we have of the earth pre-flood is right here in the Bible. Genesis chapter 4. So it makes it a very important portion of Scripture. Now, why can't archaeologists find any artifacts or fossils from the pre-flood civilization? Well, here's why. In Genesis 7, 21 through 23, it says this. All flesh that moved on the earth perished. Birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. Thus he blotted out everything, every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and the birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth. Now this is amazing. Even though there may have been up to 10 billion people on the earth, we don't have enough archaeological artifacts or evidence to reconstruct what life was like before the flood. It's as if God said, I'm going to just only, only obliterate the people, but obliterate everything about that society from the face of the earth, never to be remembered again. And I remind you, because that appears exactly what he did, why did he do that? Because the intention, the thought, every intention, every thought of the society at that time had gotten so corrupt, it was evil continually. It was sin. And that tells us all we need to know about what God thinks about sin.
Point number 10. Genesis 4 tells the story of the beginning of two cultures. I've called them two kingdoms in the Sunday school class. You can call them two families. You can also call them two cultures, the secular and the sacred. Let me explain. The first four chapters of Genesis can be outlined like this. The first two chapters of Genesis are the creation narrative, the creation story, right? Genesis 3, of which our existence, our reality, makes no sense if there's no Genesis 3. It's the fall of man. And the curses that come with it. Genesis 4 is the origin of two societies. Now, in Genesis 3.15, we read this. Remember this? The curse of the serpent. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, meaning Eve, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, this prophetic verse from our Lord reveals that there are two societies or families or kingdoms that would come from Eve. In other words, two seeds. And those two seeds will be in conflict. Genesis chapter 4 is simply the playing out of this prophetic word from God. Now, Genesis 4 begins with what? This Cain killing Abel. Why did Cain kill Abel? Well, when they offered worship to God, their offering to God, Abel did it. Abel worshiped God acceptably, right? God's way. Cain didn't worship God acceptably. He worshiped him his way, and God rejected his offering. But God goes to Cain, offers him repentance, forgiveness, for offering him an unworthy sacrifice and worship, and Cain rejects that, and he gets angry. His anger, what does he do? He kills Abel. So Cain becomes the first reprobate. That's a theological word that makes me look like I know a lot more than you do. What does it mean to be a reprobate? It means that you're beyond saving. You're an apostate. You're a, a doomed sinner. And that was Cain. And Cain, Cain was doomed not just because he rejected God. He rejected all that came with God. He was able to walk with God Okay, like Adam and Eve did at that time. He knew God in a way that we don't know. He knew things about God that we probably never do. Knowing all that, he still rejected God. There was nothing left for Cain. So he was a doomed sinner. He was done. And since Cain is not a believer now, he is of the seed of what? The woman or of Satan? Satan, exactly. And guess what? From Cain's line comes secular society. And since righteous Abel was killed by Cain, God continues the sacred line through Seth. So what we see in Genesis 4 is the Holy Spirit choosing to build human history around two families. It's the family of Cain and the family of Seth. They both were sons of Adam. In chapter, verses, chapter 4, verses 16 to 24, we have the story of Cain's family. In verses 25 through 26, we are introduced, we are introduced to Seth's, Seth's family. And this is a contrast that we have to understand. It's a contrast between two families. This is applicable to us because the truth is there are only two families in the world today. Still. There's a secular family, and there's a sacred, sacred family. There's a family of Cain and the family of Seth. 
So Cain in the secular culture, Seth in the sacred culture. Cain in material society, Seth in spiritual society. Cain in those who rebel against God, Seth in those who worship God. And to explain it in even more detail, we learn that the line of murderous Cain is evil, and that line is illustrated by who? Who do we just read most of in Genesis chapter 4, verses 17 to 26? Lamech. Okay? Lamech. The line of righteous Seth is good. That line is illustrated by Enosh in the fourth chapter and Enoch in the fifth chapter. And so we are simply seeing God, through Moses, divide for us all of humanity, pre-flood, the, the way all of humanity, post-flood, is divided. See, it began in that civilization pre-flood. In those two families, those two societies, they coexist on the planet and they will coexist until the end of history. Point 11, you need to understand common grace. What is common grace? Put it up there. The doctrine of common grace pertains to the sovereign grace of God that is always bestowed on all people in all parts of the earth at all times. Now as we go through these verses, do you understand that the common grace is? In other words, Somebody invented um, the technology that created a mobile phone, right? And let's say that that person was an unbeliever. Are you enjoying the benefits of that unbeliever's invention? You know what that's called? Common grace. It's for everybody. I think, the, was it the polio vaccine? I can't remember. I think that was created by a believer. But who experiences that? Everybody does, okay? So as we go through these verses uh, next week in Genesis 4, 17 and 26, we will learn all that secular culture has brought to civilization that both the sacred and the secular culture enjoy. Now watch this. What, and if you notice or not, what did secular culture produce? Well, from the line of Cain, According to the, that section of scripture we just read, society reaps the benefits of the creation of animal husbandry. What's animal husbandry? No, that's agriculture. It's, it's livestock. It's taking care of all those animals. Okay? Cattle and, and every, all of that stuff. And they were obviously, again, they were highly skilled in that. So they were doing it for what? That, that you, you know, if you work, what, 40 years, that's your work career? <laughs> you're 900 years old, that's your, you live that long, what's your work career? 600, 700 years? Do you think they knew how to breed cattle? How to take care of them and, and all that stuff? So this comes from secular society, animal husbandry. Music and poetry come from secular society. You see that in the text? And metallurgy. All of us probably have cars. Cars are made of metal. It all goes back to the very beginning. It came from the, in, in, in the, this secular culture from the line of Cain. I want you to see that secular culture is a provision from God for man's life. Therefore, it's a common grace. 
It brings to man the enjoyment of God's creation as God has given man all things to enjoy on this just astonishingly rich planet he has given us. So from our planet, we can pull out of it, like what? Well, fabrics, right? Clothing made of cotton. Petroleum to produce things like plastic and other things. We're able to mine all kinds of metals and all precious jewels. There are pearls in the ocean, diamonds embedded in rock. We have electricity and light for the darkness, heaters to warm us when it's cool, and air conditioners when it is hot. We have phones that enable us to talk to pretty much anyone, anywhere in the world at a moment's notice. Folks, that is all within the design of God's creation. That's all part of common grace. And a lot of those things came from secular culture. It traces back through the line of Cain. Did you know that? Number 12. Adam and Eve and their offspring were incredibly creative. All humanity, because it's made in the image of God, is creative. And because God's creative, man is phenomenally creative. And if man is creative now, what would he have been like then? How refined could his craftsmanship or art become with a pristine mind, living hundreds of years in an ideal environment in in ideal environmental conditions with a yielding earth which provide for him all of the resources right at his hand without having to wrestle with disasters and weather problems. I don't know what that existence would be like. That is completely foreign to me. I have enough hard time for my dogs to do what I ask them to do. Okay? Now, their creativity would be far beyond anything we can imagine. As we shall see, they were able to to develop a highly sophisticated culture in a massive population, folks, in just over 1,600 years. Now, 13th point is this. Now, perhaps this goes without saying, but the biblical historical record speaks nothing of evolution. Because it's so embedded in our society and we're taught it as children, when we see something and read something like this, we bring that into us in our interpretation of the passage. Don't do that. Don't do that. The Bible doesn't speak of evolution. Why? Because there is no evolution. There never has been evolution. If you study evolution, you will find the evolution of of civilization divides human history into the Stone Age, which is about 100,000 B.C. to 4,000 B.C. This was when humanity just messed around with rocks, that grunting Neanderthal man. Then comes what they call the Chalcolithic Age, 4,000 B.C. to 3,200 B.C. Then the Bronze Age, 3,200 to 1,200 B.C. And then the Iron Age, from 1,200 B.C. to 330 B.C. So evolution spreads out man's development over thousands and thousands of years. But the biblical testimony is that Tubal Cain, see his name there? Tubal Cain was the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. So here's one guy 
who did it all, right? He did it all. The theory of evolution is nothing but a theory that strains reason and credibility, and it is ridiculous. There was no Bronze Age or Iron Age or Stone Age. There was one period of time lasting about 1,600 years in which our ancestors worked with stone, bronze, and iron. This pre-flood culture, they would have made musical instruments. Okay? They developed cities, we'll get into that later. They created agriculture and livestock and populated the planet. And as we will discover, the people became civilized, urbanized, fed, clothed, entertained, comforted, and protected. It was a very highly developed society. And man was created by God about 6,000 years ago, and he was created more wonderful, more capable, more skilled, more experienced, stronger, healthier, smarter, wiser than any man we've ever met. And this is by God's design. So we say human culture is created by man as a gift from God. It doesn't take hundreds of thousands of years for man to develop. You see, the best that man can do is common grace. So there is no evolution in this story because there never has been evolution. And again, evolution is nothing but a theory. Okay? 14, Adam and Eve and their offspring recognized the formality and legality of marriage and the institution of the family. Men in both secular and sacred culture took wives and started families. And since a pre-flood society began as a highly agricultural-based society or culture, uh, having as many bodies around to help with the sowing and reaping of crops, the hunting of animals for meat, the caretaking of flocks and herds of all kinds of livestock would be essential for survival or if even flourishing in an ideal environment. This next point, though, I thought really took me back. I never thought about this. This is the last point we're going to make, and it'll be done with the sermon. It is this, that Adam sees it all. I want you to look at this. You have to look at this to, get to understand this next point. You see this timeline right here? You see all that, Adam, going all the way down to Noah? Adam almost lived to the birth of Noah. Okay? And in 1656, which is right here, see Methuselah? If you add 969 and 687, you get what? 1656. This is when the flood came. So either Methuselah died in the flood or right before the flood. So right here is where the flood came. But for most of this other time of history, all the way up to here for 930 years, what is Adam watching? Because by the time you get to the seventh generation from Adam, Cain is still alive. And if you, if you, according to the Midrash, an ancient commentary on part of the Hebrew scripture, Cain lived to see the seventh generation of his own offspring. But by this time, what's happening in the world? Because Genesis 4 is the beginning of society, Genesis 5 is the genealogy, what's Genesis chapter 6? It's the sin of the world in the beginning of the flood because of the sin. So in Genesis chapter 6, the world is so corrupt that God decides to destroy the world with a flood. Adam is seeing most of this. He's an eyewitness to this. He dies within a few years of the birth of Noah, 
But Adam actually lived right down until he could see what was coming because this massively populated world was so corrupt. And I want you to imagine what that was like for Adam and Eve. For hundreds and hundreds of years, they witnessed the consequences of their one fateful choice to believe the lie of Satan and doubt the goodness of God and then disobey God. They were able to see with their own eyes the consequences of their sin and saw this corruption take place. Can you imagine what that must have been like for Adam and Eve? Did you ever think about that? How the decay and corruption of society, it must have grieved their hearts. I think it did, you'll see as we go through this text and break it down. We'll notice by the names of the children that they have. But that's just some thoughts that you have to keep in mind before we break down the text next week about the first society. 